Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. This is our news roundup episode for the week. We did our deep dive question of the week episode earlier in the week about Amazon and the voice assistant market and um, double checking a couple of those sort of big narratives around that market, both the, the idea that voice is the next big user interface and the idea that Amazon is kind of dominant in uh, that market today. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, go check it out. One other quick plug, uh, this week I started doing a, a different podcast, which is called the Tech Narratives Podcast. This builds off the work that I've been doing with the Tech Narratives subscription service that I've mentioned a few times on the podcast previously. It's a daily roundup of uh, major tech news each day, uh, very much sort of shorter and more to the point than the sort of deeper dive on the week's news that we do on this episode. Uh, so if that's of interest to you, go check it out. It's called the Tech Narratives Podcast, and you should be able to find it on iTunes, Overcast, and other places where you listen to podcasts. Uh, but for today, this is our news roundup for the week in which we do a slightly deeper dive on just a small number of the week's news items. And we're going to focus here on four items. The first one is the uh, European Commission's uh, fine and other action against Google over Google Shopping. Uh, secondly, we're going to talk about Facebook hitting the 2 billion monthly active user milestone. Uh, we're then going to talk briefly about a, a court case in Canada involving Google, which kind of wraps into those first two items. And then our third big topic and fourth overall uh, news item will be a discussion of the Amazon Echo Show, for which reviews came out this week. It went on sale this week. I've had one for a couple of days, and I'll share some of my own views on it as well. So that will be our last topic for today. So we'll kick things off with the Google EU uh, issue. This, of course, is part of a broader EU investigation of Google on antitrust grounds. There are three big components to the overall investigation. One of them is the one on which action was taken this week. The other two concern Android and the bundling of other Google services into Android and various other aspects of, of how Google acts around Android with respect to OEMs and licensing. And then the third one is about AdSense one of Google's big ad products. So uh, that's the context is eight years plus uh, the EU has been investigating Google over these issues. A few months back it kind of said we think there are legitimate grounds for action on these uh, three topics and then this week they announced that action on the first of those which was Google Shopping. And essentially the way EU regulation around antitrust works is that it's not illegal to have a dominant position in a particular market but once you do have a dominant position in a particular market, then you have a responsibility not to abuse that dominant position. And one way you can abuse that dominant position is by using that dominant position to artificially uh, increase your market share or to block competitors in a, a different market. And that's what the European Commission alleges that Google has done here is leverage its dominant position in search, where it has a market share of well over 80% in Europe, uh, to favor Google Shopping, its own uh, comparison shopping service over other comparison shopping services. Um, and as a result, the EU is fining Google, or proposing to fine Google 2.4 billion euros, about $2.7 billion, and also requiring Google to stop doing those things, so to stop favoring Google shopping in Google search. It hasn't specified how Google should do that. It's kind of up to Google how to do that. So a couple of possible ways they could do it is just eliminating Google Shopping as sort of an integrated part of Google Search and just separating it out and let it appear in the organic results along with everything else. The other option would be to uh, feature multiple comparison shopping services in the little uh, box at the top of Google Search results for products. So uh, they haven't said how they need to do that. They have said 
that this case, they see it as a precedent. Uh, mostly they mean, I think, for other companies doing similar things, but clearly there's an angle where that could mean it's a precedent for other Google products, and that's something we should talk about a bit. Um, but uh, there are the two other cases still outstanding. So there could be more big fines to come, and certainly there could be more uh, requirements to unbundle various things and change behaviors on Google's part. Google said it's looking at the, the decision, doesn't agree with it, obviously, and uh, we'll probably appeal it, but we haven't seen all the details of how that will work for now. So that's kind of the news, um, and we'll just discuss that for the next few minutes. Aaron, what was your kind of first reaction to this? Well, what's interesting to me most about this is that they've, in a, in a sort of fundamental way, essentially ruled that Google's business model generally is, is illegal as anti-competitive. I mean, the whole concept of Android being a free OS that's handed out to OEMs so that they can then bundle these into the, bundle it into their phones and so forth is so that Apple can or, uh, Apple so that Google can make money off of its advertising products and they're now saying that that fundamental that that the the success that they've had with that business model as far as Android goes is in some fundamental way uh, in violation of antitrust laws in the EU and that's that's a pretty it, it's it's fraught with all kinds of difficulty as a as a as a decision as a legal outcome, because Google doesn't directly make any money off of Android. Um, they make it all indirectly by people using the platform, leading you know leading people into other businesses. It's a huge consumer benefit that Android is free. Um, that uh, this ruling seems to kind of ignore. That mm-hmm. and, and so to that end, it feels really one-sided to me. Um, and I, I wouldn't go so far as to call this as like as a to call this an existential threat to Google. Um, but uh, but it is a really fascinating one because the, it, it goes to the core of their business model. This isn't just some sort of ancillary thing. This was a deliberately pursued strategy that right. has essentially been ruled illegal as anti-competitive. Yeah, and that, that applies to the Android case, which is still ongoing and hasn't had a final result. But it also, your same point really applies to the shopping case that was announced this week, right. which is, you know, the, the, Google's whole strategy around search for the last few years has been to increasingly integrate other things into search results to, to kind of verticalize search so that there are sort of specialized areas within search for shopping, for news, for maps, for images and video and various other things as well. Uh, to add value, basically, to say, okay, we recognize you're searching for a topic that may be a product in one case or may be uh, a location and therefore maps would be relevant or this is something that's in the news, so we're going to show you news results. And in every case, of course, Google is favoring its own service for those things in search. And there's no law against that in the U.S., um, and it, it has been investigated in the past for various things in the U.S., and, and no action was taken because it wasn't considered to be anti-competitive. But the way that European regulation works, as I say, is once you have a dominant market position, there are significant limitations on what you can do with it as regards favoring other products, bundling, and so on. And and that's what Google's kind of fallen afoul of here. And that's where, even though Google says it's going to appeal it, I don't really see the grounds on which they can successfully appeal it because this is a fundamental facet of how European competition law works. And either Google didn't think about that in the beginning or, you know, it just all seemed so far away that they didn't worry about it. But... You know, this is the way that EU antitrust regulation works, and we can call it protectionism, we can call it, you know, anti-capitalist, whatever we want to call it. But the reality is, this is how it works, and I, I don't see many grounds for Google to successfully appeal it because this is the process kind of working as intended. 
Um, I do think that there's one area where um, in both the Android case and this one, you can make a, one reasonable argument uh, on legal grounds, which is uh, a lot of it hangs on definitions of markets. Um, and so what the EU is saying is that Google Shopping isn't just a feature of Google Search, which is kind of what Google ar argues, but it is in and of itself a comparison shopping service, which therefore competes in the broader market for comparison shopping services. And it argues that other comparison shopping services have been unfairly uh, discriminated against, essentially, by Google Search as a result. Um, you know, if I asked you to name a comparison shopping service, I don't know if you could do it. I certainly couldn't do it. Um, and, you know, th this is the other issue is eight years ago when this case started, there were comparison shopping services. That was a thing online in Europe, I think more so than here in the U.S. And there were some specific companies who objected to what Google did here and who kind of sparked this whole investigation. And that's really where this all came from. But, you know, eight years later, I think the vast majority of us either go to Google and expect Google to answer those questions for us or we go straight to Amazon. And here in the U.S., 55 percent of searches for products actually start on Amazon. Um, so Google can make a very reasonable argument, which they did to some extent in their blog post about this this week, that this is kind of irrelevant at this point. And this is a big criticism of the EU process. It's taken eight years to get to this point. And at this point, it's kind of moot where this ends up because all the services that kind of competed in the space that Google Shopping competes in have, have largely gone by the wayside or, or are so small that they're almost irrelevant. Um, but, you know, the EU's action not only has the fine and the required changes to Google search behavior, but also opens the door to civil suits by any company that feels it's been uh, hurt by all of this. And, and the EU explicitly makes that statement in its press release about all this. So there's a lot of stuff still to come here. And then there are the two outstanding cases, the Android case and the AdSense case, that still haven't reached this point in the proceedings where there's a sort of explicit action taken by the EU. So um, you know, none of this affects Google's business in the US or anywhere else outside of the EU uh, and the 13 specific countries where it offers Google Shopping in the EU. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot more to come here. And obviously, the EU is a big part of Google's overall business. Yeah, I, it, this is, you know, in, in your comments, you pointed out that Google probably just hadn't even thought of this. And I think that's one of the interesting challenges. And we're going to get to this theme later uh, in our discussion. But uh, that's one of the interesting challenges of being able to do business internationally so easily. And I realize it sounds kind of silly to say it's easy for Google to operate in all these other countries, but in, in a sense it is. I mean, they don't carry physical product anywhere around the world. You know, there's, they're essentially beaming electrons from one part of the world to another, and that's right. how they penetrate these other markets. And sure, they have mm -hmm. ad sales staff and all the other stuff that they have in these other countries, but, but it is a pretty low barrier of entry for them, generally speaking, to operate in a new country. That's how they've grown internationally so fast. And... Uh, and the the speed with which you can do that runs up against the challenge of making sure you understand and adapt to the unique legal environments you're entering. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, let's go on to talking about another very large global company, which is Facebook, uh, which announced a milestone that was kind of entirely predictable, um, which is that it hit 2 billion monthly active users. And Back in early May, when they released their last round of results, it became clear they probably would hit it around the end of June. And sure enough, uh, they announced that this week. Um, you know, there's part of me that kind of says this is a bit like, you know, a, a birthday ending in a zero. It seems very significant, but there's no particular magic about these big numbers. You know, Facebook as a company is no different with two billion and one uh, monthly active users than it was with, you know, 1.999 billion 
uh, monthly active users. There's, there's nothing that really changes as such. It, it's symbolically important now, of course, because it becomes the first company to announce 2 billion users of really anything in the world. Um, you know, Google's probably getting close with Google Search. It's got 1.5 billion monthly active users for YouTube already, and there are 2 billion active devices on Android, although those don't necessarily represent 2 billion different people. Um, but, you know, these two companies are somewhat unique in the breadth of the audience that they reach globally. And, you know, in Facebook's case, this means it reaches about two-thirds of the world's online population uh, every month, which is really quite amazing, especially given they don't operate in China. Um, but that milestone was hit this this week. Um, you know, Google, I mean, sorry, Facebook, when they announced it, kind of did it, gave it fairly short shrift. You know, Mark Zuckerberg did a post on Facebook about it. It was about three lines long, um, pretty modest, to be honest. And then uh, the Facebook sort of marketing team put out a blog post about it, but it kind of spent one or two lines talking about the milestone and then focused almost entirely on the uh, campaign that they're running at the moment. If you use Facebook, you've probably seen these little videos going around this week, basically kind of saying thank you to people for all their engagement or their usage of Facebook or their contributing to Facebook and so on and kind of in inviting people to share those videos. Um, really focusing on the kind of community message that Mark Zuckerberg has been promoting lately with regard to Facebook. And I, there was part of me that wondered whether Facebook was very deliberately not trumpeting this and making a lot of noise about it because, you know, doing so puts a target on your back from a regulatory perspective. And, and you know, it was it happened on, on the day, same day, I think, uh, certainly the same week as, you know, the Google EU decision this week. And, and you do wonder to what extent they were kind of being careful. And this gets to a broader topic we're going to talk about in a minute. But uh, it's worth thinking, too, about, you know, where that second billion came from. You know, they had a billion users a few years back. Now they have two billion. The first billion, a little over half of those came from North America and Europe. The rest came from Asia and the rest of the world. The second billion very heavily skewed towards those other regions, Asia and the rest of the world. And the rest of the world, of course, includes Africa, Latin America, um, among other places. But... Uh, you know, it's come from a very different place. And the third billion certainly going to come, the vast majority of it, from those regions as well. And, and that has implications in terms of uh, revenue per user, in terms of how those are reached, in terms of internet connectivity, and, you know, explains Facebook's investments in internet.org and so on as well. So lots of interesting stuff around that. But Aaron, kind of what were your thoughts about this whole thing? Well, just to kind of play off that last part you're referencing, I, I think it's, fa it's fun to look at this as a reflection of the progress globally, um, and, and Facebook is just being a bellwether for that. I, you know, 2 billion monthly active users implies billions of people that can use the Internet in a meaningful way, um, millions of people that are not just using it um, on a desktop PC but using a mobile Internet. Um, and that means there are infrastructures being built up to make that possible, that people have income so that they can afford even, you know, uh, that they can afford a smartphone, right, or at least a feature phone. And uh, I think that's cool. I, I think, you know, global poverty is declining at a faster rate now than ever in the history of the world with a larger base to do it on, right? I mean, you've got billions of people and poverty is declining incredibly rapidly. I, I think I, I'm, I'm happy for Facebook. It's an amazing thing that a company so young could be reaching so much of the world on a monthly basis. That's remarkable. But uh, I think it also is just this great sign for, for a lot of important progress that's being made globally. And it might seem sort of silly to say that, that Facebook is this indicator of global progress, because when I use Facebook, I usually don't think of it that way. <laughs> <laughs> right? But, but, uh, 
but in in a, in a in a really important sense, it is. It points to the fact that uh, standards of living are improving, and uh, and that people have resources that they can even be Facebook users. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's, uh, it, and I think that kind of goes to what Mark Mark Zuckerberg seems to be doing recently. He really seems to have had uh, a lot of. Uh, reflection and kind of self-evaluation both personally and on behalf of Facebook as a company over the last few months. I think his initial reaction to some of the criticisms late last year around Facebook's influence on the US presidential election, for example, was kind of denial and and pushback. But since then, over the last six months or so, he really does seem to have changed quite significantly in terms of his outlook and the way he's talking about Facebook and its influence in the world. He seems to be a lot more cognizant of the negative influence that Facebook and services like it can have in the world, both as they relate to things like fake news, but also, uh, you know, harassment and terrorism and various other things. Uh, And he really seems keen to uh, make Facebook more explicitly a force for good in the world. And, um, you know, his particular focus seems to be on community and building community. And so he's talked about meaningful group membership on Facebook as a really important measure and wanting to increase membership of those groups. And uh, and build community and that kind of thing. And, you know, I think that's a, a really positive thing. I, I, there does seem to be really a theme at the moment among the CEOs of major U.S. tech companies kind of taking more responsibility for their technology, um, you know, whether it's Tim Cook and pushing the environmental message and some social causes at Apple or uh, Satya Nadella at Microsoft talking about AI and being responsible around AI um, or um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg talking about community in the context of Facebook. We've seen a little of this from Google, not quite as much from them. Um, but, you know, there does seem to be a bit of a theme emerging about all this. But um, it also suggests that, you know, Facebook and, and Zuckerberg are moving beyond a certain naivety that existed early on, which sort of suggested that just connecting people and having people be online was going to be a force for good in the world. And, and of course, you know, all of these things are... Um, mixed blessings to put it bluntly you know they are enormous forces for good but they can also be used uh the very same tools for for evil as well and we've seen that in the world over the last few years so interesting to see facebook kind of pivoting and and that really was the focus of the message this week was yes we've hit two billion we still haven't connected anybody everybody but more importantly we want people to have meaningful connections and that's kind of an interesting new face uh, focus for facebook yeah, I think it's been funny how what Zuckerberg is doing looks a lot like running for president or laying yeah. the groundwork for that. I don't think that's what he's doing, and no. so I actually applaud him for. I mean, he's a billionaire; he doesn't need to go eat it, uh, at at uh, cafes in Iowa, right? right? But yeah. uh, but or diners, I should say. But but he's doing it, and he's and and it's inevitable that he's learning, and he looks really awkward doing it, which I think. I, I, which it makes me appreciate even more that he's doing it because um, he kind of looks silly, but he's doing it anyway. Yeah. And maybe he's maybe he's insulated to the way he looks kind of silly doing it. But um, I don't know. You just you have to connect with people to to be able to have any capacity for empathy. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I I agree. I applaud that. I think more tech company CEOs could do with getting out of the office, getting out of Silicon Valley or Seattle or wherever they may be based and out into the country and not in a way that's very carefully kind of stage managed, but actually trying to get out and meeting real people, understanding their issues and so on. And, um, you know, there's lots of mockery, lots of speculation about it. But I, I do think that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg really does actually want to go out and learn what real life is like for people, not just throughout the U.S., but elsewhere. And I think that's actually a a good thing. It's a a very healthy thing for him to be doing. I agree. 
Uh, let's talk briefly about this third item, Google uh, in Canada and a court case this week. And Aaron, I'll, I'll let you as our resident legal expert kind of talk through this one a little bit. Well, just to give a little background, um, there's a, a British, uh, sorry, a British Columbia company in, in Canada called Equus Tech, and uh, they develop uh, internet routers and other things have some unique intellectual property tied to them. Um, they accused a company called Datalink of stealing intellectual property and actually rebranding Equus Tech routers and other devices and selling them online for cheaper um, Datalink fled the province. They left and went to operate outside of Canada, but they're still selling all these products online. So Equus Tech, um, not being able to have any sort of legal recourse against Datalink, went after Google and told Google that they needed to remove any Datalink search results uh, from, uh, from any searches uh, for Equus Tech or related products. Um, and uh, so where the where the big controversy for this comes in is not just that Google has to filter the search results that appear in Canada, but that they have to is that the, the Canada Supreme Court um, has ordered, and it was a seven two decision, which is a big deal because it means there are a lot of uh, justices in the Canada Supreme Court who favored this. Um, essentially, they ordered Google to take down search results globally. So the idea is you, you, in searching Google, if Google complies with this court order, if you search Google for these particular routers, the data link rebranded ones won't show up anywhere in the world. Um, obviously, the reason this is such a big deal is because the Canada Supreme Court has essentially reached well beyond the boundaries of the country to essentially say, look, we are controlling speech, not just within our borders, but we're controlling speech globally. Uh, it's interesting, too, the way that they described it, because in the court ruling, they essentially said, and this is a quote from the ruling, this is not an order to remove speech that on its face engages freedom of expression values. We have not to date accepted that freedom of expression requires the facilitation of the unlawful sale of goods. So they're essentially saying, look, free speech doesn't extend to breaking the law in other important ways, in this case, like misrepresenting. Uh, the trademark of a certain uh, goods that you're selling online. The truth is it's the same in the United States in that sense. You can't sell somebody else's product by substituting your own trademark uh, on that product. That's Free speech doesn't go that far in the United States either. But what's problematic is that Google, or sorry, Canada, the Canada Supreme Court has essentially taken upon them enforcing this ethic or ideal about speech globally. And they've said, look, the, the Canadian perspective on free speech in this regard is now required of the entire world. Um, that's fine if you agree with the free speech principle that they're, that they're promoting, but uh, every country has unique perspectives on free speech and every country has a moral argument why their perspective is superior. And that's why free speech generally needs this wide deference because we disagree about what's true, what's not, what's right, what's wrong. And so we, we uh, you know, we ought to have a broad set of protections for speech. Well, with this decision, the court has essentially said that the global um, uh, market of speech, the global venue of speech has to reflect this Canadian perspective. And that's where it's really, that's why this is such an interesting and controversial decision because it, uh, it, 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 
hopefully isn't a landmark for, for, you know, a lot of this stuff going on. Countries have tried before to enforce speech at, at an international level like this, but, uh, but this one has stuck, and it's stuck at the highest level of, of uh, the Canadian government. And so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out internationally. The truth is, I, I think personally, this isn't the sort of issue that Google could resolve on its own. And by the way, just a comment, it's Google today, it'll be Facebook tomorrow with its 2 billion monthly active users. It, you know, it'll be any number of other international firms operating online. Um, it, th this isn't a problem that's going to go away until there are international treaties in place, essentially saying, look, this is how we as countries in the world have to agree that speech should be regulated, or better right. put, not or hopefully not regulated. Yeah, yeah, and and the broader context too is that there's a lot of um, legislation, a lot of other court cases in other parts of the world that you know could easily go this way as well, and that can end up leading to similar outcomes. But with regard to what is more traditionally thought of as free speech, whether it's hate speech in various European yeah, countries, exactly. and there's a new law in Germany that's just been passed with regard to removing hate speech. Uh, that does just apply to Germany, but you know there are, there is a huge potential for similar things elsewhere that could have far more far-reaching implications, and it'll be very interesting to see how that gets applied and enforced as well. Because you know the Canadian Supreme Court can say whatever it wants to Google, but I don't know what its enforcement power is for Google outside of Canada, uh, or for any court for that matter. I mean, the, the people tend to assume that people obey courts, and it's always one of the big debates about the Supreme Court in the U.S. is. If it tells the federal government it can't do something, what happens if the federal government decides to do it anyway? What enforcement power does it really have? But you know that that becomes a particularly interesting question when you think internationally. Um, but yeah, lots of interesting issues that arise out of the global scale of these big companies like Google and Facebook, and obviously we're going to add Microsoft and Apple and others to that list as well. Yeah, just uh, you know, structurally, there's you know this is similar in many ways to to China and its international, its filtering of the web. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, the, the Chinese government has essentially said this is acceptable online content and the rest of this is not acceptable online content. And, and, and China has enforced that for all of its, uh, for all of its citizens and residents. Um, the Canada decision is actually almost a little bit worse if you think about it, because they've essentially said this is filtering that has to be done around the globe, not just right. within our borders. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on to our last topic. And this is talking about the Amazon Echo Show. This is Amazon's latest Echo speaker. This is the first one with a screen. It has a screen and a camera um, and sort of bigger speakers, more powerful speakers than the previous version. And uh, it went on sale this week on the 28th. Um, and I, I pre-ordered it when it first went on sale so that I'd have it this week to try out. So I've had it for a couple of days. But now, the embargo on reviews lifted earlier this week as well. And just to kind of summarize what I saw in reviews, on the plus side, um, the, the big things are better speakers, more powerful speakers, uh, the screen being useful in general, uh, video calling working well. Uh, on the negative side, uh, reviewers said the screen isn't always available as an input when it wants it to be. In other words, it's always there as a display, but you can't always interact with the things on the screen and often have to sort of fall back to voice. Uh, the speakers are still inferior to real dedicated speakers. There's this drop-in feature within the video calling uh, function, which feels a little creepy. Uh, and there are some other sort of frustrations and limitations. And so, you know, I kind of wrote about that sort of roundup of reviews earlier this week. But having tried it myself for the last couple of days, I have some observations of my own. Um, 
the speakers definitely are better. They're stronger than other speakers like the Google Home and, and Amazon Echo. And so it really does get quite loud and, um, you know, it's, it's much better for music listening and that kind of thing to the point where you sometimes feel you have to yell at it. You probably don't actually have to yell at it, but you, it's so loud sometimes that if you want to actually say, Alexa, do this or Alexa, do that in the middle of a listening to something, you kind of always feel like you have to yell back at it just so it will hear you. And that's a, a human thing. I've no evidence that you actually have to yell at it, but it, <laughs> it, it's a funny thing to have this thing blasting such audio at you while you're trying to talk to it. Um, that's a minor thing. But some other things, certainly the screen is slow to respond. And this is an interesting difference between a device like this that has a screen was a very visual either responsiveness or non-responsiveness to things versus a device that has some kind of light or something on the top. You know, with the Echo and the Home, there'll be some sort of visual indication through lights that it's thinking, if you like. Uh, whereas on this device, often there's a visual indication that it's thinking and then nothing happens for a second or two and you think, oh, it's conked out, it's, it's not doing anything, and you get ready to go repeat the command or try something else, and then suddenly the, the screen uh, does something and does actually change. And so there's this weird lag, which there's no kind of visual indication that it's thinking on the screen itself, and that can be kind of frustrating and a little disorienting from, from time to time. Um, I agree with what some of the other reviewers said in that the, the fact that the screen is not interactive in many cases is frustrating. There are a lot of times where you just wish you could touch things on the screen or, or manipulate them in ways that you can't. And that, that feels reflective of the fact that Amazon hasn't traditionally done screen stuff. They don't want people to think of this as a tablet or something like that where you can fully interact with the screen. And so they've almost deliberately handicapped it. But as you know, all of us are very used to interacting with the screens that we deal with in our daily lives, and this is a touch screen, that, that also feels a bit disorienting. Um, one big thing that I've noticed is and it was kind of predictable, and I kind of talked about this when the, the device was first announced, Amazon doesn't really have a legacy in communication, and it also doesn't have a legacy, therefore, in social networks and knowing who you know and all that kind of thing. And so as a sort of hack to get around that, uh, they have basically made the way to get contacts onto this thing uh, that the app, say on your iPhone, uh, the Alexa app taps into your iPhone contacts, and that's how you populate your contact list and it basically matches up your contacts with other people and their contacts and then kind of people that you have a mutual relationship with, those are the people that actually show up in your contacts on the device and that you can therefore call. Um, it's a great hack. It's a nice way to kind of get around the fact that Amazon basically knows nothing about who you know and might want to talk to. The problem is that if you want to add additional people to your contacts on the device, there's no way to do it on the device. You have to go into your iPhone contacts, not even the Alexa app, but your iPhone contacts app, add somebody, they have to add you in a similar way on theirs, and then when you next open the Alexa app, that populates and syncs back to the Amazon Echo Show. So it's a very cumbersome process if you want to communicate with anybody uh, that you haven't previously communicated with through the device and, and who hasn't automatically shown up in your list of contacts. And what's notable from the reviews, a lot of the reviews, if you read any of the reviews, you will have seen Oh, I couldn't really call anybody except for a PR person at Amazon. Well, because that was somebody they'd already communicated with via email about the device and so on, they, the contact was there already. Um, if you're using it in real life, you suddenly encounter issues like this, like the, the friction for communication is really quite high. Once you get somebody in your contacts, it's great. It's very easy to call somebody. Uh, the, the video calling experience itself is very good. Um, but that friction to first contact with somebody who isn't automatically populated in your address book, that's really annoying. And it's just an indication of how little background Amazon has in this space and how the little hack that they have for trying to get there doesn't quite work right. They need a way to natively add new contacts. 
Um, I'm trying to think what else. Oh, the, the, the display at rest, if you like, is very busy. It's constantly cycling through. Uh, try this, try that. Here's, here's some inane news for you to read about. Um, you know, ask Alexa about this news item or whatever. And so, you know, I've had it on my desk in my office just because that's where I am all day long and I've wanted to kind of try things on it throughout the day. I found it very distracting and none of that distraction is actually useful. It feels very needy. And, you know, for a device that, you know, I'm potentially going to own for several years, do I still want a year in that it's constantly suggesting new things for me to do? And that's one of the big advantages of the Echo and the, and the Google Home and devices like that is because they don't have a screen, they're not at all distracting. They fade into the background very nicely. And, you know, tablets and smartphones, generally the screen is off when you're not using them. And this is an unusual example of a device with a screen where the screen is always on and always trying to get you to do something. And it feels very nagging. Uh, and so that's one other thing I didn't really see in the reviews and maybe partly people have it in the kitchen where they're not spending all day there, but it's something that does strike you. And, and I took a video of it. I'll, I'll post a, a review at some point in the next little while and, and I'll include the video in it, but just it cycles through this stuff. And so much of it is just, it's like the tabula area on a, on a web news site where it's like lots of really stupid news items that aren't really all that interesting or, or important. But anyway, I'll stop there, Aaron, any comments from you? Well, a question really. I mean, a lot of this stuff feels like things they could fix. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it, it, having a screen on one of these home assistants is a pretty new thing for them. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of this stuff seems fixable. What's your take on this idea of having an information appliance? What's its place in your, in your home? I mean, now that you've had a chance to play around with it a little bit and you've had, you know, you've had an echo for a while mm -hmm. anyway. Um, I mean, is this version of it, has it got legs? Does that make sense? Yeah, I've always felt like these things kind of needed a screen. And obviously with Siri or something like that, you always have the option of going to a different way of interacting. You know, if you want a recipe, you just go into the web browser and pull it up there. You know, on a voice-only device that's in the kitchen, looking at recipes seems like an obvious thing. And yet the audio-only interface is terrible for something like a recipe where you need to yeah. keep referring back to it. And so screen is, in theory, ideal for that. The implementation's not bad. There's an integration with all recipes, which is one of the skills or apps that you can install. And if you ask for a recipe, that's what happens. It'll, it'll offer to install that for you. And, you know, you get a nice recipe on the screen. The problem is the screen seems to time out after about a minute and go back to the home screen. So oh. you have to keep asking it to open it again. And in my experience, when I asked it to open that app again, it did at least open back to the same recipe. But I saw other reviews where it basically said they had to start from scratch every time. And that's obviously a non-starter. It's not much better than an audio-only interface. So, you know, in that sense, that's a bit frustrating uh, for one of the major things that it could be really useful for. Um, you know, it's it's a video device. It does play video as well. But the other thing I found is you can't browse video. Uh, I've tried many different commands for, you know, show me stuff to watch. And it basically says, sorry, I can't help you with that. If you specify a particular show, either on YouTube or in Prime Video, it will find that and start playing it very quickly and the experience there is very good. But if you don't know what's on Prime Video and would like to know, there doesn't seem to be any way to kind of bring up a set of options. And, and that's a thing that seems a little odd. A device with a screen that's capable of playing video can't show you what your video options are. So that's, that's an odd one. Um, but yeah, in general, you know, there's weather and things like that that are quite nice to see sort of visually as opposed to just having them read to you. The video calling I can see being really nice, especially... You know, I, like many people, you know, I and my kids will talk to my parents through uh, FaceTime or Skype because they live a long way away. Uh, and 
there's often a lot of setup involved. There are glitches. There's, you know, try how to prop the iPad up so that we can see each other and all the rest of it. You know, this device could theoretically solve that. The problem is it's going to be probably on a kitchen counter um, where you may not have seats right next to it, where it may not be the right angle. So there's a lot of stuff that feels really good in theory, but maybe doesn't work quite right in practice. And as you say, some of it's fixable. Um, through software, and, and some of it's just Amazon hasn't thought through stuff. Some of it feels like deliberate decisions that are just the wrong decision, and, and both those things could change. Um, but yeah, it feels like it's a good concept, and for only $50 over and above the standard Echo, the fact that the speakers are better, that you do get that visual feedback and so on, there's a lot of stuff that feels like it would justify that $50, but um, it feels like it could be a lot more than it currently is in, in the current iteration. Interesting. Well, it'll be interesting to see how well that that grows as a product. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll I'll, I'll share any more thoughts that I have over the next few weeks as I spend some more time with it as well. Well, let's wrap up for this week there. Um, That's our news roundup for the week. As usual, in the show notes, there will be links to uh, these stories. We can go read more about them on either the Tech Narrative site on the original sources. Um, So we'll link to those. As always, welcome your feedback about the podcast, anything you like or don't like. Uh, let us know. We're always trying to make it better if we can. Uh, and again, I'll just give a quick plug for the Tech Narratives podcast, which is a daily quick run through about 10 minutes worth of the day's news. Um, so all the day's big tech news uh, every weekday. Uh, it'll be episode five later today. So something I just started this week. So go check that out wherever you normally listen to podcasts. Have a great weekend. If you're in Canada, happy Canada Day. If you're in the US, happy July the 4th, early next week. Um, We will be back, I think, with our usual episodes next week. Uh, And so until then, have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.